Today's show is brought to you by Against All Odds with Cousin Sal, part of the Ringer Podcast Network. Tune in as professional prognosticator and antagonist Cousin Sal breaks down the world of sports gambling. From NFL games to competitive eating contests, Sal offers up his best bets and odds analysis while joined by celebrities, Vegas experts, and his degenerate trifecta of close friends. Subscribe to Against All Odds with Cousin Sal, available on Apple Podcasts, Stitcher, Spotify, or wherever you get your podcasts. Welcome to The Ringer MLB Show, part of The Ringer Podcast Network. My name is Ben Lindbergh. I'm a writer for TheRinger.com, and I'm joined, as always, by Michael Bauman, also a writer for TheRinger.com. Hello, Michael. Hello. So later in this episode, we are going to talk to Rob Arthur from 538 about his recent research into the hot hand. And before we talk to Rob, we're going to talk about the hottest hand in baseball, Giancarlo Stanton. I thought it was Marcus Stroman's hand with the, you know, with his complaints about the blister, you know, blisters <laughs> that, in the new baseball. Too. But working on that joke for two days. Yeah. <laughs> a lot of that type of hot hand going around this year. But yeah, I, I just wanted to... Say a quick word about the four-man outfield that the Cubs tried against Joey Votto on Monday night, which was a curious time to do it, I think, just because the shift has been fairly effective against Votto. And this was not really the sort of situation where you're playing to prevent the extra base hit. The Cubs were up by several runs and just Votto's not an extreme fly ball hitter or anything, but the Cubs did move who Bryant, I think, out to the outfield and they had four outfielders and three infielders. And of course, Votto doubled anyway, which, you know, he hit a a grounder down the first baseline. And it's possible that if they had been shifting against him in the usual way, the infield shift that Rizzo might have gotten to that ball, but maybe not. Might have been a double anyway, but the shift didn't help. But it was a strange time to use it, but it seemed like it just kind of came down to the Cubs could not get Votto out with the traditional defense. So they just figured, we'll try something different and maybe that will work and that didn't either because Vado was awesome. Yeah, I'm a I I actually like the well, you know, we got to try something else. Like what we're doing wasn't working. And I mean this is another thing that the Cubs can do just because everybody has played everywhere. So you're put Chris Bryant out in right. in uh left center and essentially have a three-man outfield if you've got Kyle Schwarber playing on the line. <laughs> That's true. But, you know, he's played enough corner outfield that he's going to go out there and not look like an idiot, which which is a danger with a lot of infielders. So, it's worth a shot yeah. and uh they didn't get Votto out this way there are plenty of other more conventional ways to not get Votto out <laughs> exactly right it's just such a strange strategy like I like in theory the idea of stationing your fielders Did you use a four-man outfield yeah we we used one with the Sonoma Stompers in 2015 when I was working on my book with Sam Miller and we were running this lower level independent league team we used the four-man outfield we used the five-man infield And we did it because there were hitters who seemed to really fit that profile. Like there was this one guy who always hit fly balls and he never hit them to one field. So it was just a natural fit for the four man outfield. And then there was another guy who hit nothing but grounders. And so we did a five man infield on him. So in principle, I like the idea, obviously, of stationing fielders wherever you think the ball is likeliest to go. But the four man outfield is a weird one in that it keeps resurfacing like every decade or two. It gets rediscovered in baseball and people proclaim it as this new strategy. You know, now it's like this new saber metric cutting edge strategy, but 
This is something that the manager Bertie Tebbets was doing, the so-called Bertie Tebbets shift in the 1950s. This was something that was tried later on in the 70s. It was something that was tried against Mark McGuire in 98. And now it's come back again and teams have been talking about it. And there's been speculation that the Cubs might try it even before they did. And it only makes sense because Joe Madden has done this before. He did this with the Rays against Travis Hafner a decade ago. So it's this weird tactic that keeps coming back into vogue briefly every, I don't know, 10, 20 years, and then it disappears again. And I wonder whether we will get to a state where it becomes a regular part of teams' toolboxes or not, because I don't think there are that many hitters it actually makes that much sense against. But every now and then there is one. Yeah, every I mean, everything happens in cycles. It, mm-hmm. it, this is just the nature of tactical back and forth. And you see this in pretty much every form of competition that 10 years ago, the NFL discovered the single wing again. And that was a 90-year-old offense or whatever. Yeah. I just hope if, if all this stuff keeps coming back every 15 years, we're not too far away from cargo pants coming back in a style because that was a that was a good time for me so you still have yours you know if we're, if we're bringing stuff back from the 90s i don't know they wouldn't fit me even if you know these this is like middle school yeah. was the last time cargo pants were in style but i've got my fingers crossed <laughs> yep i was with you i i went through that phase as well i think we all did those of us who were <laughs> of a certain age at that time So we want to talk about the Marlins, and there's been lots of Marlins news since the last time we talked. First of all, the Marlins have reportedly been sold, and it's been reported previously that the Marlins had been sold, and they hadn't at the time. But now it seems somewhat more solid that this ownership group led by Bruce Sherman, who is the money man, and Derek Jeter, who is more of the public face and supposedly will be running the baseball operations side of the team, That group has reportedly purchased the team for $1.2 billion, although it still has to clear some hurdles. It still has to be approved by the other 29 teams, et cetera, et cetera. But this does seem to be the end of the Jeffrey Loria era. Just about. I won't believe it until it's actually over and all the papers are signed. (laughs) But, But it seems like we're closer than we've ever been before. And I know, I think you wrote something about the end of the Loria era when we thought it was the end of the Loria era earlier this year, right? So do you have any parting words for the most reviled owner in modern baseball? Uh, apart from good riddance, <laughs> you know, he's a product of his system. Mm-hmm. He is, you know, we're, we're happy that he has managed two franchises in bad faith over the the course of the past 20 years and he's going to make his money back right. at least 10 times over, yeah. you know, maybe 20 times over, whatever the the exact sale price is. I'm disappointed that this is not the Pitbull group that, that <laughs> yes. won the bidding. Pitbull was involved in one of the, the competing bids and my disappointment that he won't be the public face of the Marlins is immense as much as I like Derek Jeter. Yeah. And, you know, I just think they're going to get a lot of rope and we're going to talk about Giancarlo Stanton because everything has sort of all come together with the Marlins in the past week. But like if the first two things they do are take down the dinger machine and trade Stanton, then how much of an improvement is this. So, you know, I've I've just over the past few years, I've just always been aware of the fact that it can always get worse. So I'm cautiously optimistic, I think would be 
would be a good way to to put my feelings about the the Marlins. And the other thing is, you talked about how it has to be the sale has to be approved by the other twenty nine owners and the and the league and and all that. And you know, I just think it's hilarious that we're still acting like Major League Baseball is thirty competing companies and not a cartel uh-huh. that has banded together to build local taxpayers and screw organized labor and the consumer and so on and so forth. So I just want to get that in there before, (laughs) you know, you blow past that and make me stop talking. Yeah. Yeah. So John Heyman, I think it was reported that the Marlins home run sculpture could be first on the cutting block for the team. And that is sort of sad. Although, I mean, the sculpture was very emblematic of this Marlins group and the way that they ran the team. And it was just this absurd structure that didn't fit in with anything else in a major league park. And it was sort of the redeeming factor of that park just because everything else was so bad and the team was so poorly run and no one was coming to the games and no one was watching the games, but at least there was this weird home run sculpture that we could all gif and and use in tweets. And so if it does go, I would be sad to see it go. But if I were a Marlins fan and there aren't that many of them out there, but I know there are a few, they might not be sad to see it go because it might mean that along with the lack of a home run sculpture will come and actually intelligently run team that does other things well. Now, I I think that taking down this is something that as a football fan, I find myself frustrated with is you have these football coaches who enact a lot of really dumb rules for their players. And this is mm-hmm. something this is a Joe Madden thing is like, you know, his thing is I won't fight the players on the stuff that doesn't matter as long as they don't fight me on the stuff that does. And it's just you, know, you see NFL coaches just try to micromanage everything because they know that they don't actually have powers. Uh-huh. So they're trying to generate the appearance of power and Taking down the the dinger machine is, you know, you don't have respectability, so you're trying to have the appearance of respectability, mm-hmm. and it just go, it flies in the face of of the way that that I would want to see a team run, which is if you can't be good, be entertaining, and it's colorful, and it's not that much more absurd than the train at Minute Maid Park or Bernie Brewer going down the slide at Miller Park or the Apple at City Field or even the Liberty Bell. At Citizens Bank Park, there's one of these in in 15 ballparks across the country. And just because this one's weird doesn't make it like doesn't mean that that you should take down the one distinguishing characteristic of this stadium. Mm -hmm. So but obviously, I you know, there's a reason that I don't have one point two billion dollars. It's that I don't have the bloodless, joyless approach to life that somebody works his entire life making money does. Well, and Derek Jeter obviously came from the Yankees system and they've made a brand out of being kind of bloodless and joyless, but also winning every year. And we've seen other people try to import that Yankees ethos onto teams that don't win, like even Don Mattingly with the Marlins, right? Would yeah, yeah, they had the, you know, no facial hair the, policy the facial for hair a while band. there. Yeah. And it yeah, right. It didn't stick because the Marlins just didn't have the success to to justify it really. You couldn't ask players to conduct themselves with a certain propriety when the ownership group wasn't. So maybe you can if the ownership group changes, but I agree this team is not going to be good for a while, so you might as well let them have fun. And I think that the question of how they get good and when they will get good is very tightly tied up with Giancarlo Stanton, who 
you wrote about for Wednesday because he has been completely unstoppable and on fire and homering almost every day. So now there's the question of what to do with him. But first, let's just talk about how he has been in the month of August. He's been really good in the month of August. He's homered in 23 of his past <laughs> 35 games as we record. Uh, I believe he's one of four players to ever do that. So the tack I took is just sort of he felt like this alien monster when he first came up in 2010. And Mm -hmm. what we realized was not that he was unique, but he was just the first of this class of enormous super athletes who, who would follow him. And he is sort of leaped back out in front of the pack. And it's, you know, it's nice to see that he's sticking himself ahead of the crowd again. And just it's also nice that he's healthy. I think that's the biggest thing His home run rate isn't that much higher yeah. than it was two years ago or even I think in 2012 when he led the league in slugging percentage, he was homering in something like 7% of his at-bats. So on a rate basis, he's not that much better than he ever was, but he's just staying healthy long enough. He's only missed two games the entire year. So just from a neutrals perspective, it's fun when your good fun players are on the field all the time. And if nothing else, you know, this is what it took to unlock the full potential of the mighty John Carlos Stan, as I've been calling him for five years. And MLB's Twitter account has been calling him for five hours. So, <laughs> you know, it's nice to, to see that catch on, too. Yes. Nice to see your nickname recognized. So, yeah, uh, he's hit 11 home runs in his last 50 play appearances as we speak before Wednesday's games. And I was trying to see if that's historic in some way. I mean, obviously, he homered in six straight games. The record is eight. I was trying to see how his production over that 50 plate appearance span compares historically. I don't know if you remember a couple of years ago, Bryce Harper had just an amazing hot streak in May of 2015, and I was able to compare his 50 plate appearances to every span of 50 plate appearances for every hitter since 1950. And I found that his hot streak that year was the hottest. No hitter had ever been hotter over that span of plate appearances. So I looked for Stanton's most recent 50 plate appearances, and it's just nowhere near the top. And I think that's partially because he just homers a lot, but he doesn't get so many other types of hits. Like during those 50 plate appearances, he hit 400 with a 460 on base and an 1178 slugging, which obviously is amazing, but he only walked three times during that streak. He had more home runs than he had other types of hits. If you compare that to, say, Harper's streak from 2015, he hit 575 with a 660 on base and a 1450 slugging over that spin. So this doesn't quite compare to that, but just purely home run rate wise, obviously, it's extremely impressive. And and people have started talking about whether he's going to challenge records. And he does have some things in his favor there as Joe Sheehan pointed out in a recent piece, there's the fact that he doesn't walk much, which means he gets more plate appearances, more at-bats. He also hits high in the order, and the Marlins are going to play a lot of meaningless games down the stretch, so he's probably not going to get that many intentional walks. So all those things are in his favor, but he'd basically have to sustain the pace that he's had in August to challenge the Bonds record. Although the previous records, the Ruth and Maris records, those are more realistic and in reach. But you're right. It's great because we very recently were talking about Stanton as if he was kind of passe. We were talking about Aaron Judge as like the new better Stanton. And now we're talking about how Aaron Judge isn't hitting and Stanton is a monster and an alien again. Yeah, it's I think 73 or 74 home runs is is not realistic. Yeah. I mean, if, if he does this, like you said, if he does this for another six 
six weeks and we'll talk, but nobody's ever done this for, (laughs) for six weeks. But one thing that I think if you're like us and you grew up sort of watching baseball in the steroid era, and that was your, you know, your formative baseball experience, you don't really appreciate how rare 60 or even 50 home run seasons are. There's only been, I think, 43, 50 home run seasons, and about half of them came between the strike and and the Mitchell report. And there have only been eight 60 home run seasons uh, in Major League history. And that's absolutely in play for him. So we talked about the the Marlins Stadium and how it sort of plays pitcher friendly and, and how it's kind of a waste that Stanton plays there and not it at Minute Maid with its short porch or or Coors Field even or you know someplace like that or Texas and, and maybe he would have been putting up these numbers all along but yeah it's you always the cool thing about him is like it always felt like something like this was in there in a way that maybe it didn't with somebody like Chris Bryant mm-hmm. and it's just you know I I just keep saying it's cool it's cool it's cool but it is that's really the only thing you can you can really say about a streak like this mm-hmm. and we did a podcast segment earlier this year about Stanton with Tim Healy, who covers the Marlins. And we were talking about it then as if he was beginning to be a burden or an albatross. And can the Marlins unload him? Would they consider unloading him? And now there's renewed discussion about Stanton as a trade target, although much less as a means of just dumping salary, although that would certainly be part of it as the fact that teams might actually want him. And Jeff Passan Wrote an article the other day. He argued that the Marlins need to trade baseball's home run king. And he reported that Stanton has cleared waivers, so he can be traded to any team. He reported that at least one team before the July 31st deadline got to the point of exchanging names of players with the Marlins and that a few teams are still talking about trading for him before the August waiver deadline. So this seems to be in play again, and Stanton obviously has 10 years and $295 million remaining on his contract, which is quite a bit, but it seems like a more affordable load now than it would have even a month or two ago. I mean, that's if the Marlins get somebody to take on the rest of the contract, that's sort of what you'd have to sell based on six weeks of baseball. And even, you know, as exciting as this is, I don't know that I'd want to count on Stanton since June 1st being the Stanton that you're going to get for the next five or 10 years. But it only takes one. My my thing is, if it when it looked like Stan was just never going to be healthy enough to to get 500 plate appearances routinely, and when he looked like a malcontent, and like when he looked like he was starting to age out of that good two way player that he's been most of his mm-hmm. career, then this was one thing. But for him to do this now, and then for the Marlins to turn around and trade him, particularly with new ownership, particularly if it's just a salary dump, if they don't eat a lot of money to get prospect value back because that's the thing like their farm system is just so bare they've drafted so badly they've been so bad in the international market recently there's just nothing even if they wanted to rebuild if they prioritize getting rid of the salary over getting prospects back that's just such a kick in the teeth Mm -hmm. to the fans and i just don't know how you can applaud anybody replacing Laurie and Samson and going out and, and doing that. It's just in the name of, of, of business. Like this is not, it's just so grotesque to to talk about that. Like it's a worthwhile baseball obstacle. Cause I think if you eat a lot of the salary and you trade Stanton, you get some preposterous prospect package back. That's a lot of the letter P <laughs> in that sense. Um, but if you do all that, like there's an actual legitimate baseball ops argument to do yeah. that. And 
even if it's not fun, even if I don't think that it outweighs the PR hit that you take right now. But, you know, selling high as if, you know, we talked about this with Sonny Gray, like at what point are, are these teams going to stop? I was going to say selling hope. They're not even selling anything. They're just cashing revenue sharing checks at this point. So at some point, enough is enough. And to look at this and think, oh, well, now they can trade him is just grotesque as much as I think, you know, Jeff's argument was well reasoned and, you know, he thinks these things through. It's it's really about more than just baseball. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And Jeff was making the case that this would be different from the many sell offs that we've seen the Marlins make in the past where those were purely about saving money. This would be getting the team back on more of a competitive footing going into the new ownership group. Because as he mentioned, with Stanton, you have a payroll of something like $125 million for next season without adding anyone. And there's no real reason to think that next year's team will be significantly better than this year's team. And this year's team is not good enough. So if you're going to make a franchise altering move like that, this would maybe seem to be the time when you're making a franchise altering move of selling the franchise. So I don't know to what extent the incoming owners have input over the team's moves right now, like whether you could just pitch it as a Loria move, like one last Loria sell off and keep the the new ownership group's fingers free of of that move reputation-wise. I don't know whether that would fly, but I think that's basically the idea is that teams built around Stanton and even around Fernandez when he was there too were just never quite good enough and that you really have to sort of reset and start over and that this would be the time to do it when Stanton looks more marketable and more valuable than he has in some time and than he might for some time to come, particularly because he has often been somewhat outspoken about being unhappy about the way the Marlins operate. That was the impetus for our previous podcast about Stanton was that he had come out and made statements about how upset he was with the way the team was run. And who knows if he will continue to be happy staying on that team as he ages and more and more of his prime seeps away and his chances to make the playoffs and go to a World Series pass him by. Is it better to, if you can find a taker, send him to a contender where he'll be happier, you'll save some money, maybe you get something back and you can kind of start fresh. So I I see the rationale. It's not easy to work out a deal involving a contract of this size, but if it's something that's more feasible now than it was before Stanton was the league leading home run hitter, then I wouldn't blame the Marlins for exploring it. Yeah, I wouldn't blame them for exploring it. It just his contract isn't the problem. Wei Yin Chen's contract is the problem. Or, you know, no, the, actually, the real problem is they've got an ownership group that won't spend at least to the luxury tax. Like, I don't know that selling off Stanton, particularly if and they're talking like what really betrays this is. They were talking about salary dumping Christian Yelich, who's signed to a, a contract he should fire his agent for negotiating just because he's got a couple of tens of millions of dollars of of guaranteed money down the line doesn't make that anything but a steal for the Marlins. And, you know, at some point, we've just got to point the finger where the finger needs to be pointed. You know, it, this doesn't get any more palatable because the Marlins didn't like the, the last couple of sell offs. At least they were good first. Mm-hmm. 
And that just hasn't been the case since the Stanton contract. And like, this was just so obviously what was always going to happen when that we saw how backloaded that deal was and where the opt out was. And I, I just, I hope this is a Jeffrey Laurie problem and not a something that the the new ownership is going to, you know, essentially do what he did in 2012, which is pay for one year of contention. When that didn't work, he's just going to race to the bottom. Mm -hmm. It's just so nihilistic. Mm Well, it's been fun to watch Stanton, and it would be a lot of fun to see him on a contender if that were to happen. But regardless, as long as he stays healthy, I'll be happy that we are getting to see him play to what feels like his full potential, possibly for the first time. So let's take a quick break here, and we'll be back after a word from our sponsor. Hey guys, before we go on, I want to tell you about our newest podcast, Ringer FC. Each week, Chris Ryan, Ryan O'Hanlon, Micah Peters, and various Ringer staff members will be discussing everything happening in the world of soccer. From the Premier League to the MLS, let our soccer experts guide you along ahead of the 2018 FIFA World Cup. So make sure to subscribe and listen to Ringer FC wherever you get your podcasts. So we are welcoming back now a former guest of the show, friend of the podcast, Rob Arthur of 538, who has taken another crack at a subject that has mystified statisticians and sabermetricians and has at times in the past seemed to be refuted. And now maybe there's some evidence supporting the idea. His article at 538 is called Baseball's Hot Hand is Real. So hello, Rob. Hi. Thanks for having me. So this is, it seems like just the latest topic that maybe the earlier wave of analysts kind of disregarded, maybe because of less sensitive data, whether it was catcher framing or the idea that better pitcher matchups are predictive in the past. That stuff has just been thrown out or or even the utility of spring training data. We did a podcast segment about that once. And really, you just need more precision to detect these things that people in baseball have said have existed for a long time. So you've taken a look now at the hot hand, the idea that some players are sometimes cold and sometimes hot. You can find lots of people who are absolutely convinced that it is real and lots of earlier analysis that suggests that it isn't. So can you maybe go over the previous research into this topic and why it has failed to come up with any evidence for an effect? Sure. So I think that a lot of the previous research focused on a lot of the sort of outcome measures of how well a hitter or a pitcher is doing at kind of a a high level. So for example, people have looked at batting average, which we know is a remarkably noisy statistic. And there's a lot of variation just because of chance, but also because of, for example, park and who a batter is facing the pitcher and the opposition and the team that's fielding the ball and all these other factors. So when you look at a statistic like that, what people had done to study the hot hand before is to say, okay, over a period of, let's say, 50 at-bats, this hitter has a really high batting average, let's say, uh, you know, 500 batting average over 50 at-bats. How well do they do on the 51st at-bat? And typically what people had found with both hitting and pitching statistics is that they did no better than they would have been expected to do over the course of the full season on that 51st at bat. So a lot of people have taken that as evidence to suggest that the hot hand is not real and that any impact of how well they were doing doesn't carry over into that next at bat. Uh, And that goes, as I mentioned, that goes for both hitting and pitching. And when people have found an impact, it's been typically very small. So some researchers have occasionally found, you know, a tiny little bump in performance, but it's been kind of muted by the fact that you're studying a very noisy statistic. 
Uh, and so the, the impact is, is quite small. And that gets into something that we've discovered as we've developed ERA predictors and sort of and started to get like actual batted ball data and pitch data that the closer you get to the source, the less time it takes for a statistic to normalize. So how small a, a slice of, of a pitcher season can you look at here and say, like, this is significant. This isn't just within game variation. Right. So that's one of the reasons why we chose to look at fastball velocity. And that's where we kind of looked for streakiness. And with fastball velocity, it really comes just from the pitcher, right? There's no other factors influencing them. There's some factors that influence the measurement, like whether a particular stadium's gun is hot or cold, but you can easily adjust that out. And when you do that, you're left with this number that's really just reflective of how well the pitcher was throwing that day. And that number, that uh, normalized fastball velocity number, it stabilizes or becomes consistent within a couple of pitches. So it's really, really like right on the nose. It can predict how fast the pitcher throws the ball on, you know, one pitch predicts very well how fast they'll throw it on the next pitch. Uh, And as a result of that, you have a lot more power to find streakiness. You know, because this measurement is so consistent from one pitch to the next, you can actually see uh, when a pitcher is throwing harder or slower than they typically do. So as a, there's an obvious follow-up to that. And in the article, you said the a pitcher goes through 57 streaks in a season, jumps between hot and cold every 24 pitches. So I guess when we're talking about hot streaks, if anything, we usually talk about periods of time that are much, much longer than that. So this would have implications for anything from knowing which free agent to pick up in fantasy to you know much more serious analytical implications. But how useful is it to be able to look at hot and cold streaks that might only last you know once through a batting order? Yeah, I think there's still some utility to it. And I guess another point I want to make is that the statistics that you just mentioned, an average length of 24 pitches, that's actually 24 fastballs. So that ends up being okay. more like 50 total pitches. And the other thing is that that's kind of the average, or it's actually the median for the typical streak. Some pitchers had streaks that lasted much longer than that. So some pitchers, for example, in the run-up immediately prior to an injury, they had three-start cold streaks. So that would definitely be actionable. In fact, it would tell you potentially that a pitcher was suffering from some kind of hidden uh, problem, whether it be you know an elbow ligament, partial tear, or something like that. That would be really useful to know. But even if you take just the kind of median hot streak, the one that is only 24 fastballs, let's say 50 pitches, that would be, I think, useful for knowing when to pull a pitcher out of a game, for example. So if you if you start the game and you see your pitchers throwing well and they're hot, you let them go through the order one more time. And if they start to slow down, the, va- the fastball velocity begins to go down and it looks like they're entering a cold streak, that might be the time to take them out because they have lost their edge at that point. So I, I do think that even even if you take that average as the sort of typical length of a streak, and apply that across the board, there would still be some kind of actionable information here for a manager to make use of. And obviously, there's going to be variation from pitcher to pitcher in how long these hot and cold streaks are and what the magnitude of the difference is. Maybe some guys are really cold when they're cold and other guys are really hot when they're hot. But can you give us some sense of how the typical pitcher differs from hot and cold in terms of fastball velocity, but also results, because ultimately that's what we care about. Right. So the average pitcher in our data set varied between their hot and their cold velocity by about 1.8 miles per hour. So that's pretty big in, in baseball terms, as I'm sure I don't need to tell most of the listeners. 
But if you apply this kind of rough rule of thumb that other people have found in studying the relationship between fastball velocity and runs allowed, that would result in about a 0.5 runs allowed per nine difference for the average pitcher between when they're hot and they're cold. And I think that's actually kind of the tip of the iceberg because what we found in looking at pitchers when they were hot is they started to outperform even how well you'd expect them to do based just on throwing harder. For example, we looked at their swinging strike rate and the batting average against, and we found that typically when a pitcher was hot, they got more swinging strikes and they had allowed fewer hits than you would expect even just from how much harder they were throwing. So it seems like the pitchers, when they're hot, they're, they're generally performing better in a whole host of ways, both in terms of command, but also in terms of velocity. You put all that together, and I think when a pitcher is hot, they're, they're really doing much, much better. And I should mention that some of the pitchers we saw, the, we saw differences as big as three or four or five miles per hour when they were hot versus when they were cold. So that's really tremendous differences we're seeing. It can make the difference between a pitcher being kind of a mediocre sort of back-end starter and an ace. Mm -hmm. So as I was reading an early draft of your article, I was trying to come up with things that maybe you could be detecting that actually weren't hot and cold streaks. Maybe it was ballpark effects with the way that the pitches are measured. Maybe it was the fact that if a pitcher had a big lead, he might just start throwing more slowly or if he's facing a weaker lineup or something like that, he might not be throwing all out and maybe something would look deceptively like a hot or cold streak, but not actually be that. And I know that you actually adjusted for that and corrected for those things before you drew these conclusions. So can you talk about that or any other factors that you accounted for or believe you accounted for here that could potentially explain this other than hotness and coldness? Yeah. So we kind of, we started off by trying to neutralize the fastball velocity to account for all, all the factors you mentioned. So for example, a typical one is like temperature. We know that pitchers throw a little harder when it's hot. So we remove the effect of temperature. Um, another thing is fatigue. So pitchers naturally begin to throw a little bit slower as they get tired during a game. So there's a pitch count effect where every successive fastball tends to be a little bit slower than the one before it within a game. So we removed that effect. We also tried a whole host of other uh, factors and found that they either weren't significant or at least for the typical pitcher, they didn't affect fastball velocity very much. So one of the things we looked at was like leverage. We looked at late game innings where the score was close. And for example, in those situations, we didn't see any uh, overall effect where a pitcher was throwing harder. Um, that kind of defies what you might expect, but it's also consistent with the idea that these guys are trying to throw as hard as they can at all times. And so they can't really reach back for more, even if they wanted to in those moments, because they're always giving it 100%. Now, with some of those, with some of those things, I'm sure there are pitchers that can do that. Like uh, one of the guys that we looked at specifically was Justin Verlander, and he always seems to have this ability to save a bit of velocity for late in the game at one of those high leverage moments. So I'm sure there are exceptions to this rule, but overall it looked like pitchers on the whole didn't have that ability. And so, you know, maybe if you want to look at Verlander's streakiness and put a little bit of salt on, on our findings there, that's, that's fine. But I think for the average pitcher, we found that they didn't really have any ability to adjust for leverage or even the opponent they were facing. They tended to throw the same speed at all times after accounting for factors like fatigue and temperature. So I've been, this isn't strictly about this article in particular, but I'm bringing this up because Ben sort of, he didn't use these words exactly, but he, he sort of invoked pitching to the score. 
and mm. as a as a potential effect. And I'm just curious because this is just one of probably dozens of direct refutations of Sabermetrics 1.0 orthodoxy that we've seen over the, the past few years as our data has gotten better, as our measurements have gotten better, as our social science methods have gotten better. And I'm certain to some extent, it's starting to feel like we're a couple years away from an actually bunting is good article. And <laughs> so I'm just curious how that how that strikes you is, you know, we're sort of tearing down all these things that were that we took as gospel 10 years ago. Yeah, I, I find it to be really interesting. And I think that I don't view it as necessarily like we we found that streaks are actually real in the same way as people were arguing that streaks were real before. Um, and that's something I've gotten some pushback on that what I found isn't really hot streaks because I'm not looking at performance. I'm not looking at earned run average. I'm actually looking at a component of how pitchers are good. And that's a slightly different thing. But I think that's common with a lot of these, as you said, refutations of Sabermetrics 1.0. It's, it's not that these things don't have a grain of truth to them. They do. But you have to study them very closely, and they're only true under some circumstances. So I would never uh, like urge a reader to take from our article that if you see a pitcher has had five good starts in a row, they're going to be good in that sixth start. That's not the case. What you should do, in fact, is look at their velocity numbers and you might even need to have a fancy statistical model to really detect whether the velocity numbers are actually up or whether it's just an artifact. As you mentioned, it's, it's kind of like you can't see a lot of things unless you have a microscope. And what's happening now is that we are developing and taking microscopes from other fields of research and we're applying this to baseball and we're finding that these things are there. They're just kind of smaller than people would have initially expected and they only take hold under particular circumstances. They're not visible if you use something mm. like ERA. Yeah, and that it sort of follows a pattern of we're getting, you know, I don't know whether to call it humility or parsimony to use some of the, the social science jargon, but we're like approaching this with a without expecting the numbers to explain everything. And that's, like you said, like the caveat about how this might not apply to Justin Verlander might not have occurred to, to somebody that this theory doesn't actually fit almost every single case 10 years ago. I just, you know, I don't know if you have anything more to add, but I just think that's an interesting direction that we're seeing the better sabermetrics research sort of take that. It's getting professionalized and, you know, for lack yeah. of a better way to put it. Yeah, I think that that is important. I think that early on, it was these sabermetricians were coming up against a bunch of former players who were kind of insisting against all available evidence, for example, that hot streaks were real and that by looking at and at bats, they could forecast the next at bat much better than chance. And so it, I think it required a lot of the early sabermetricians and the proponents of it to be kind of strident in their denials and say, no, there's no evidence for this. It couldn't possibly exist. And you're just wrong. Now, I think now that sabermetrics has kind of reached the mainstream, we don't have to fight with those people anymore. I don't feel the need to debunk it when a former pitcher says that some of my research is totally wrong because he doesn't understand it. I can kind of be more nuanced when I look at it and allow for the possibility that I missed something with particular pitcher with Justin Verlander or that my results are not not quite as as complete as they could be. I think that that's partially driven by the fact that I don't have to be constantly defending the idea of using numbers to analyze baseball. So I think it, it's kind of a luxury and I'm uh, grateful for many people who uh, fought these battles before me to allow uh, sabermetrics to actually have a place in the in this discussion. As you mentioned, just the fact that a pitcher has been hot or cold doesn't mean that he will continue to be hot or cold. But you would think that 
a team could look at this and possibly pinpoint the reason why the pitcher is hot and cold. I mean, maybe it's a mental thing and a psychological thing at times, but it could very well be a mechanical thing where for some reason things are out of whack for a certain span and then you get it back under control. And so if you're a team and you're looking at the data in the same way that you are, you could look at your pitchers, particularly with some pitchers who have a tendency to get very cold or very hot and say, okay, here's what you look like. Here's what you're doing when you're in one of these hot streaks or cold streaks. So here's what you should try to be doing or try to avoid doing. And maybe it will get to a point where you could essentially coach hot streaks, which I guess is what teams are trying to do anyway, but maybe they could do it with even more effectiveness by looking at the data on this granular level. Yeah, I'm excited about the possibility that this could be used in that way and and also used for, for example, to detect injuries. Like I mentioned before, you know, if a pitcher suddenly goes into a cold streak, maybe it's time to ask them if their arm is feeling okay. I mean, I think a lot of these players, they won't complain until uh, a ligament actually tears, even if they're feeling some discomfort. So there's a lot of ways I think this could be put into use by an enterprising front office. And I know that we've had some uh, interest from people. So I, I think it, it will get employed in that way going forward. But here's where it gets, again, much more complicated than simply like we run this model and we can tell when a, when a pitcher is on and off. If you were to do that, you'd have to really talk to the players and, and get them to open up about what they're feeling and, you know, whether they got a good night's sleep and whether they might be having some discomfort. And it would get a lot more complicated at the point of actually putting this into practice. And I guess it'll be interesting to see whether front offices are able to make use of it in that way. And one thing that struck me immediately is that one of the hallmarks of, of recent sabermetric research is like is that teams have a lot of data that the public doesn't. And so this has obvious implications that you've gone over that teams might be able to use even within games. So I, I guess I'm I guess I'm asking if you've heard anything about whether this this is an injury prevention tool or whether like this could be the basis for for communication. So I don't know of any anything in particular concrete right now. I, I do know that there's been research kind of along these lines before for detecting injuries. There was a, a great research piece years ago from a guy named uh, Josh Kulk, I believe, who almost immediately got a job with the Tampa Bay Rays. And he was using periods of, of lower than average fastball velocity to potentially diagnose, I think it was injuries requiring Tommy John surgery before they happened. So I think that this general type of analysis is on their radar. I think that the particular formula or the, the, the methods that we used were unknown to most teams, at least that I'm aware of. And so I'm, I, I think that it's going to get more attention. And oh, I wonder uh, whether any teams will be able to actually put it into practice. And I hope someone will be able to pierce the veil and tell us if they do. Do you, is there a question that you go into how you suspect this happens for hitters too, but it's sort of a different research project. Is there another question that you wanted to answer that's related to this, but you don't have the data for that you think that if you had access to an MLB team's database that you'd be able to expand on this theory? Well, I guess what I'd say, there's nothing really quite like fastball velocity for hitters. There's exit velocity is kind of the most immediate translation, but exit velocity is really dependent on like pitch location and whether a, a hitter was expecting the pitch and the movement of the pitch and all sorts of different things. So that's a little bit harder. And actually, I was alluding to this on Twitter, but we analyzed exit velocity as part of the research for this piece and, and couldn't find any significant evidence of exit velocity hot and cold streaks. 
But we think that part of that or a lot of that is due to the fact that exit velocity is just a lot noisier than pitch velocity. And it depends on so many other things. So I think that if I had access to a team database, I'm not sure what they track on hitters. If there's anything physiological, though, if there's anything that's like really just a product of the hitter themselves, like maybe their bat speed or I don't know, some something along those lines where it's really just coming from the hitter and they can get more data on that than we can. I would love to have that and be able to actually look at hitters with that. And, and maybe hot streaks just really aren't real for hitters. I mean, that's totally possible to me. Hitters don't get injured as often, but I, I wish that we had something as informative as fastball velocity for hitters. I think we would be able to tell whether streaks were real or not for that group. So I know that you're planning to do some follow-up research and future articles. Is there anything you can tell us about that you're working on or hoping to confirm? And do you plan to, or have you already talked to players to get their perspective and see whether that helps you at all refine your model here? I talked to a few players in advance of this article about hot streaks in general and whether they ever felt like they were especially hot or especially cold. And as you might expect, nearly every player anybody's ever talked to will insist that hot streaks are real and that sometimes they feel like they're really in the zone. But different players seem to have different experiences of what that means to them. You know, sometimes it's just like a good feeling. Sometimes it's they're throwing the ball harder and sometimes it's that they feel like they can really locate the ball. There's all sorts of different experiences they might have that go along with feeling hot. I would really love to take some of this data and look at some of the pitchers that have unusual patterns of streaks and ask them what's going on. One of the ones that I was thinking about from the article was Cole Hamels because he has relatively few cold streaks, but when he does have them, they're pretty severe. He loses three miles per hour off his fastball. I'm just curious, like he hasn't had a lot of injury troubles the last few years. I'm wondering like what happens when he's on those cold streaks and maybe there's something that he knows about and would be, would be willing to talk about that predicts those cold streaks. And I'd love to like talk more to some of these players with unusual hot and cold streaks about what the experience is like for them and whether there's some factor in their lives that can explain why they get hot and cold. I'd also like to, in the long run, look at whether teams might be already using this data or already making decisions with something like this data. I'm kind of curious whether managers decide when to pull a pitcher based in part on their fastball velocity, or it might not be based on fastball velocity, but it might be just how the pitcher looks and that correlates with fastball velocity. So that's another thing that I'd like to look at in the long run and see if some managers are just really good at telling when a pitcher is about to get cold and sort of fall off their mechanics and whether they can use that. And that seems to me like potentially promising. So I don't think that the concept of people being hot or cold was ever all that controversial when you're looking back on it. Like you can, you know, I've just finished writing at length about John Carlos Stan. No one would deny that he's having a hot streak right now, but predicting it has always been the trouble. So how difficult was it for you to find a way statistically to sort of reverse that causal arrow and gain that insight where you're able to to predict and, and look forward to the next few pitches? Yeah, that, that was always the tricky part. The model that we use, it's not really a predictive tool. It's not meant to do that. It's actually meant to go back and sort of look at a pitcher's statistics and then find the points where they switched from hot to cold. But you can use it as a predictive tool by essentially blinding it to the latest pitch and running it on all the pitches before that. And if the latest pitch is hot, then you predict that uh, the next pitch will be 
faster than average. And if it's cold, then slower than average. And so that was really the tricky part to uh, repeatedly run this model in that way and, and find out when a pitcher, whether it had any predictive value to show that a, a pitcher's next pitch was actually going to be faster or slower than average. I think that's been kind of the issue with a lot of the hot hand research. It's not that people don't believe that players kind of go up and down. It's that it's really tough to predict when a player is going to go up and down or to know that they have jumped into a different sort of set of circumstances. So I still think there's a lot of room for improvement in terms of our model, in terms of predicting that a streak is going to shift. And I think that that's another one of the areas where we're looking to fix it and maybe employ some new methods so that we can actually know that a player has switched states before or right after they have so that we can make more meaningful predictions. Mm -hmm. Have you had anyone cite your research or retweet your research to gloat about previous nerds who have said that there is no such thing as the hot hand? Because I'm I'm curious about whether <laughs> that sort of person <laughs> can use very statistic-heavy research to gloat about previous very statistic-heavy research or whether even your article, which maybe confirms the original opinion, is too nerdy for anyone to use it as a point in favor of the argument. Yeah, Joe Morgan is suddenly very... Very interested in Markov chains. <laughs> yes. Right. Yeah, I haven't I haven't seen a lot of that to be honest. I, I think I've seen the one person retweet my article saying like, uh, "Take that, you quants." I was right all along. But of course, the irony of that is that uh, you yes. know I'm a quant too. So. Right. Uh, I, I I just think that that's it's not very persuasive to those people when we make a statistically informed argument in favor of something. And I think that a lot of people are worried, and wrongly so in my opinion, that when I publish a piece like that says the hot hand is real, that all those ex-players are going to come out of the woodwork and say, I told you so, and say, let's look at the, the last five starts and predict the sixth. I think that's kind of a, a boogeyman. I don't think that's going to happen. And I took pains to emphasize in my article that this only works with fastball velocity. It doesn't work with uh, earned run average. It doesn't work with other things. And it doesn't work unless you have a pretty quantitatively heavy model to actually do the analysis with. So I don't think that's a real concern. And I think that this is a, a big step forward in understanding why we didn't see hot streaks before and how we can see hot streaks going forward. Is there anything that you might be able to to use like fastball velocity to track off speed pitches? Like is there would movement not work or or something like that? Yeah, I think we could look at movement and that's on our sort of to-do list. I think it's a little bit trickier there because I know some pitchers, I think it's quite a few pitchers, have different, not pitch types, but even varieties of pitches within a given type. Some have like a hard slider and a soft slider. So they're intentionally varying the movement of their pitches to confound and deceive hitters. That would really complicate our analysis because technically it's the same pitch type. And so we'd have to find some way of kind of factoring that out. This, that's much less of a problem with, with a fastball, especially a four-seam fastball, which were the majority of the pitches that we looked at. Because really, the pitchers aren't usually, or it doesn't look like they're usually taking a little bit off to mess with the timing. Usually, they just seem to be throwing it as hard as they possibly can. And at least certainly with some of these streaks, nobody's trying to throw a sequence of 20 pitches that are two miles per hour slower than normal. So I think it would be more complicated to look at the breaking pitches, but I think we will be able to. It'll just take some additional doing. 
Well, we are glad you were here to bring the necessary precision to this analysis. Rob's article, again, is called Baseball's Hot Hand is Real. You can find it on 538. And you can find Rob on Twitter at No Little Plans with underscores between each of those words. Rob, thanks as always for coming on. All right. Thank you for having me on. It was a pleasure. All right. So that will wrap up today's episode. We will be back on Monday. And on Monday morning, I will be at a minor league baseball game in Salem-Kaiser, Oregon, watching the Salem-Kaiser volcanoes at a total eclipse of the park, which is a pun that it feels like maybe you could get behind. But total eclipse is on Monday. I am. I've got a huge <laughs> grin on my face right now. <laughs> Good. Yeah, total eclipse is on Monday, and the volcanoes are having an eclipse event. So they're essentially starting the game early in the morning and then the game's going to pause for a total eclipse for a few minutes and NASA's <laughs> handing out safe eclipse viewing glasses and then they will resume the game. So I am really looking forward to that. We'll be back on Monday, but I'll let you know how that was after it's over on Thursday when we're back for the episode after that. Yeah, you say you're looking forward to it. Just be careful where you look. That's the, the important thing. Yes. <laughs> I will exercise eclipse safety. All right. We will be back next week. Talk to you then. See ya. 